Thank you, Matt. Good morning, brothers and sisters. It's good to be together this morning. Thank you to the praise team for setting the stage for us this morning, coming to the altar, God's invitation to us to come because our hope is in him and then us inviting the Holy Spirit to come and be welcome in our hearts as he guides us. We're going to be taking a break out of our series in the book of Acts for this week. Uh, I'll pick it up again next week in Acts chapter 8. So if you want to read ahead, that's good. Not now, but for next week. Uh, But this week is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, the third Sunday of January. January 22nd, 1973, the United States Supreme Court ruled that a, a pregnant woman has the right to an abortion without excessive government restriction. This is a case known as Roe v. Wade, or Roe versus Wade. Sanctity, we refer to the sanctity of human life. Sanctity refers to the idea of being sacred or holy, and thus entitled to protection, respect, to be secure from assault or trespass. Last year when we did this, it's hard to believe it's been a whole year since we did, but last year we looked at the scriptural foundation for the sanctity of human life from the point of conception onward. We also spent some time raising awareness about abortion in the United States and offered some suggestions about what can be done. And as a a matter of that, I just wanted to bring to your attention again the baby bottles here, our project of the month for this month is to support the Amnion Crisis Pregnancy Center. Our goal is to raise at least $1,200 towards that effort to be able to give to them. So these baby bottles are here at the front you can take to fill with change or whatever you'd like to put in there or send a check to the church office designated or put it in the offering. Uh, This is going through February 14th. So this is one way that we can have a small part in preserving the sanctity of human life. But today, I'd like to take a different focus. Rather than a broader view, I would like to zoom in on one individual's story. This is the true story of a woman in our church whom I will call Nadine in order to protect her identity. Nadine's story is going to be read by Christina Stiers in three chapters. We're going to hear her story then we will see how the Bible speaks to that story. And as she and I talked about it, she said, I sure hope my story will help others in some way. Let's see how the gospel of Jesus Christ enters her story and then impacts on the sanctity of human life. See, the sanctity of life is not just about abortion. It is about all of life, all of us. So I trust that we will all be listening for what God has for us this morning. So as we dig in and see what God has for us, I'd like to just take another moment and pray. Father, I pray that you would search us and know our hearts, that you would try us this morning and know our thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in us. And we ask that you would lead us in the everlasting way. May you open a door for your word into our hearts. And may you help me to be able to declare the mystery of Christ and to make it clear. So we leave that to you to guide us and teach us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we go on, let us hear Nadine's story, chapter one. 
This is Nadine's story. I wish to remain anonymous because of my family members. All names have been changed to protect that anonymity. My birth family was full of chaos, arguing and fighting. I never felt I fit in, but then I was a lonely, melancholy child. As a child, I went to Sunday school and loved learning about God. I memorized scripture and hymns. I even dreamed of one day marrying a preacher and having five kids. But during my teen years, hormones and trying to fit in spoke loud, louder than thoughts of God. Instead of following God, I followed after boys instead and found Graham, one who in stark contrast to my family was extremely calm, quiet, and self-assured. We dated in high school and broke up his first year of college because I wouldn't give him what he wanted. We then got back together in my second year of college. When we got back together, I was determined not to lose him again. So I did what I thought I needed to and as a result got pregnant. We married then. After several years, we started going down a path of darkness, experimenting with drugs and sex. I jumped right in senselessly and recklessly. My husband and I eventually divorced and my kids went to live with him. One night, I left my kids, who were only spending the night with me, with a babysitter who I should not have left them with. I went to a bar and had too much to drink. On my way home, I totaled my car and had to face the fact that many times I had neglected and endangered my children and needed to change. God must have been with me because I'm still here. I stopped my reckless living, but was alone and afraid and not seeing that God was there. I tried to get back into my ex-husband's favor, but with that, I was pregnant again, more than once. This time, with no help, nowhere to turn that I knew of, I made the easiest decision and got an abortion. I did this again and again. In fact, I did this three times. Then I had a tubal, so it couldn't happen again. Graham and I became a couple again, and we remarried. But now I was full of depression and guilt because of the mess I had made of my life, the abortions and the pain I had caused my family. I had found a good job, and we lived a stable life, but I was empty, very empty. Thank you, Christina. Empty. Very empty. I wonder how many of us could identify with that uh, in life. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, because I'd like to now lay Nadine's story next to the scriptures to give us some insight into how she ended up in this situation of alone, afraid, depressed, and guilty, going down a path of darkness, not seeing God, and as she said, empty, very empty. So I turn your attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I'm going to read from verse 9 to the first part of verse 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such 
were some of you. We'll notice here in verse 9, Paul talks about the unrighteous, the wrongdoers. This describes those who are living outside of what God has said is right and good for us. In fact, this is the natural state of every one of us by birth into this world. We live outside of what God has said is right. There are many outward expressions of that choice to live apart from God, partially mentioned here in the list that Paul gives us. But the bottom line is the same. It's living life for ourselves and not for God. That is what defines sin. Sin is not ultimately defined by what we do or say. Sin is defined by our relationship to God. When we say to God, I am going to live life my way and not yours. And then Paul says there in the first part of verse 11, and such were some of you. It's not saying that some of you were sinners and some of you were not sinners. He's saying some of you sinned in this way and others of you sinned in this way. The fact is that we are all sinners. Such were some of you. And this is Nadine's story. We are all stained by sin. Stained by sin. Paul says there are at least two consequences of this that's related to the sanctity of life. In verse 9, he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? We will not inherit the kingdom of God. We will not live in relationship to God because we've thrown that life away. We have said, God, I want to live my life my way, not connected to you, not living for how you would have me to live. We devalue life with God. We are eternally separated from God because of that choice. But if you look at this list, there's a second implication as well, and it is this. Every sinful action devalues human life in some way. Every sinful action devalues human life, takes away from the sanctity of life in some way. First, it devalues the life of the person who's the receiving, on the receiving end of that sin, and it devalues the life of the one who's committing that sin. For example, let's look at his list. Um, verse 10, he says, thieves. He talks about thieves. Well, what does a thief do? A thief comes to you and says, I want what you have, and I'm going to take it by force. So he does. He devalues you. So if I am to steal something from you, I am devaluing you. I am denying your sanctity. You're, you're deserving of respect and safety. I am taking for myself what is yours. But that act of stealing also devalues me because now I have just lowered myself to the position of a predator, to a position of a person who's trying to advance my own causes at your expense. I don't care about you. I am just looking out for myself. So every sinful action devalues human life. This devaluing of human life isn't just about abortion. It includes the sins that Paul mentions here. And if you think about our current cultural struggles in this country and around the world, it also includes things like infanticide, child abuse, the dealing with orphans, human trafficking, disabilities, immigration, how we care for our elderly, the end-of-life issues, physician-assisted suicide, gender identity, sexual preference, racism, social justice, the destruction of marriage and family. All of these things have to do with devaluing human life, not honoring the sanctity 
of human life. Think of Nadine and her story. How did her sin devalue life? Well, if you look at the life of others, she had the abortions. She says she endangered and neglected her children. The drunk driving put her and others at great risk. She caused pain for her family and others. Her choices to live life apart from God caused pain to others. But what about her own life? Physically, she abused her body with drugs and alcohol. Emotionally, she was empty, depressed, lonely. Spiritually, she was hopeless, full of guilt, fear, and regret. And Paul says, such were some of you. That is where we sit in lives stained by sin. Well, that's not the end of the story. Let's have Christina come back and let's hear chapter 2. Chapter 2 of Nadine's story. A counselor told me I had a God-sized hole in my heart and pointed me in the right direction. My daughter was taking music lessons at a local church, and I would go to church to hear her play. I heard many altar calls and answered them privately in my heart, then eventually publicly in front of the church. I was baptized there. My early Christian life after baptism was joyful. I studied the word, joined a prayer ministry, read, and listened to evangelists. Graham did not have any part of this life but we were okay. I knew about Jesus' suffering on the cross. I repeated to God, against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Psalm 51 verse 4. And then I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus from 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21. During this time, I heard about the pregnancy care center. They were having a training day for volunteers. Having had abortions was the biggest regret of my life. When I was young, I wanted lots of children. I saw this ministry as an opportunity to give back, to make up for my earlier life, and do penance by trying to help others make the decision to not have an abortion. While volunteering, I learned about a post-abortion ministry class and joined. It was there that I really accepted God's forgiveness and knew that Jesus had paid the price for all my sins. After some time, I left the church that I loved to go to a church where the gospel and the Bible were watered down. I hoped that there my husband Graham would feel more at ease and interested. This new church became a place to have good discussions. It was fun and social, but not so much a place to learn about Jesus. I gave up on my focus on what Jesus had done for me. I forgot how much God loved me and went from worshiping to just trying to have happy feelings about God. This did not give me the strength to live a joyful, God-focused life, so I coasted for a while. I still went to church and had Christian friends, but life was more important to me than God. Sadly, despite my efforts, Graham decided to go his way, and I had another wake-up call. I had to rely on God for his direction. My go-to and sustaining verse at this time was Proverbs 3, verse 5 to 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. 
In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. Chapter 2 ended a little differently than chapter 1. How did we get from empty, very empty, to trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, and all your ways acknowledge him? A big change from chapter 1 to chapter 2. Let us go back to 1 Corinthians 6 again and see that really what this is talking about, that once she was stained by sin, now she is saved by the Lord Jesus. Go back to verse 11 again, where Paul goes through his list in 9 and 10, and then he says, such were some of you. In that, in that reading, he identifies us as being part of that group. But let's read it a differently. Let's read it a different way now. Such were some of you. Such were some of you. This is past tense. This is who you were. But look what he says in the rest of verse 11. Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You were washed. You once were dirty, but now you have been made clean. You were sanctified. Once you were spoiled, impure, living for yourself, but now you are purified and living for God. And you were justified. You were once filled with the guilt of violating God's standards, filled with the shame of disgracing God and those around you, but now your guilt and shame have been removed and you have been made right with God. Such were some of you, but you were washed you were sanctified, you were justified. But how is this even possible? Well, Paul goes on at the end of that verse 11 and gives us two clues as to how that is possible. He says, first, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. Jesus has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He lived the perfect life that we failed to live. He died the death on the cross that we deserve to die. On the cross, he took the penalty for our sin. On the cross, he bore the weight of our shame. And he rose from the dead three days later, conquering sin and death once and for all. And now, whoever believes in Jesus, in his life, his death, his resurrection, will have forgiveness of sins, removal of guilt, removal of shame, and regret. And notice, this is more than pardon. Pardon is the excusing of an offense without exacting a penalty. An excusing of an offense without exacting a penalty. No, God exacted the penalty for our sin. He put that penalty on the Lord Jesus. The penalty for our sin was paid. But that's not it. That's not all that it is, because not only did he forgive our sin by taking the penalty on himself, but Jesus now gives us of his righteousness and of his goodness. He takes his goodness and he puts it into our account. So this is more than pardon. This is forgiveness and this is giving us his goodness and his righteousness. Paul says it's not only in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you look there in verse 11, but it's also by the spirit of our God. Jesus does not just provide for our forgiveness 
our guilt, and our shame, but he sends his spirit to live within us, those of us who put our faith in Jesus. The spirit is the one who gives us understanding of his word and his ways. He is the one who empowers our lives to live for him, to transform us into those who were once living for ourselves into those who are living for him. You see, Jesus restores the dignity of all humanity. Where once we devalued the life of others because of our sin, we now sanctify, honor human life. Where once we devalued ourselves, he has lifted us up. One way I like to think of this is that the value of something is determined by the price someone is willing to pay to have it for themselves. You may look at something and wonder why someone thought that was so important to them, but they paid a lot of money for that. That determines its value because it's something they wanted to have for themselves. Well, our value is seen in the price that God was willing to pay to bring us to himself. It costs the life of God's son, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a song that I'm reminded here. It's Keith and Kristen Getty's song, My Worth is Not in What I Own. There's a line there that says, two wonders here that I confess, my worth and my unworthiness, my value fixed, my ransom paid at the cross. You see, the cross defined our worth and our unworthiness. The cross defined our unworthiness because it is there that Jesus took upon himself the penalty for our sin. We were declared as sinners with no hope and God placed the sin of us on him. He placed the penalty of our sin upon him. He paid the penalty. At the cross, our unworthiness was declared and our ransom was paid. But the cross also defines our worth, not just our unworthiness, but our worth. Because at the cross, God paid the price of his only son, the life of his only son, to purchase us. The value that we have in God's eyes is such that he was willing to pay the price of the life of his son to purchase us. Our value was fixed. Two wonders here that I confess, my worth and my unworthiness, my value fixed, my ransom paid at the cross. God accomplished both at the cross. That is how Nadine went from empty, very empty, to full, full of trust in the Lord with all your heart. Where once she was stained by sin, now she is saved by the Lord Jesus. Well, now let's hear chapter 3 of Nadine's story. I moved away from my hometown spent some time with my ailing mother, which was a huge blessing, and then moved again when she passed away, moving here to Havertown. I am a spiritual weakling, but I know the Christian life is one of growth in knowledge of God and in allowing him to direct your life in seeking his direction every day. I now face things with God. I know he can heal, but I am not yet totally healed. There is still much sadness over my past, especially when I am alone. I can rely on God's word. My life is still sad, 
and I know I don't deserve all the grace I am shown daily. But God has removed my sin as far as the east is from the west. He gave me a lighter heart and set me free. In Matthew 7, verse 7, the word says, Seek, and you will find. God always answers when I seek his presence. Here, I have found community with a focus on God's steadfast love and grace. Other scriptures says, Iron sharpens iron, and do not give up meeting together. These positive things are happening because I am a part of this church body and in Bible study. Here, I feel God's presence and feel called to know him more. I am excited that I can grow closer to God until I get to heaven and then grow closer still. And I look forward to one day meeting three children I didn't get to meet here. Thank you, Christina. Don't we just love triumphant stories? I was once a drug addict, and when I gave my life to Jesus, I never went back to drugs. I was once a liar, a cheater, a voracious gambler, but when Jesus came into my life, I had been completely transformed. Though these stories do often occur, and many of us could give testimonies to things that we once did but no longer do, they are not the whole story and can be very misleading and disheartening to us if not understood correctly. God certainly has rescued Nadine from darkness, fear, loneliness, shame, guilt, emptiness. Jesus has brought light and hope and forgiveness and meaning to her life. But if you listen, what other echoes do you hear in this third part of her life? Let's listen again. I am a spiritual weakling. I know God can heal, but I am not yet totally healed. There is still much sadness over my past, especially when I am alone. I believe there's a very important lesson for us here that we now, I invite you to turn to Philippians chapter three, just a few pages over. Philippians chapter three, to look at this third part of Nadine's story. In the first part of Philippians 3, Paul outlines his life before Jesus, the empty things he was pursuing that he thought would bring him life and meaning and purpose. But when Jesus entered his life, he says, I counted all of those things but rubbish in order that I may be consumed with one thing, and that is pursuing a person. Pursuing a person. Paul says the highest goal of his life now being consumed with pursuing the person of Jesus Christ, is to fully know Jesus. His goal is to attain, that all, to attain to all that God has for him. He wants to be all that God wants him to be. That's the singular focus of his life, to pursue Jesus and to know him better. But let's look at verses 12 to 14 and see what he says. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Jesus Christ has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul says, 
I'm striving for these things, but I have not arrived yet. I am still a work in progress. He outlines that a little bit more. If you look in verse 12 at the end, he says, Christ Jesus has made me his own. That's a fact. The undeniable fact is that Christ Jesus has made him his own. And that applies to any of us who have put our faith in him. Christ Jesus has made us. He's made you his own. He's made you his child. You're a child of God. You are an heir of the king. It's an undeniable fact and a work of God on your behalf. And Paul says, my goal is to make it my own. Christ Jesus has made me his own. My goal is to make that my own. I need to grow into what it is that God has already given me. I need to learn to live like I am his. I need to learn to live like I'm his child, like I'm an heir of the king. I need to work out in my life the implications of what it means that Christ has laid hold of me. And in that light, he says in verse 13, but one thing I do, one thing I do, jumping down to verse 14, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He said, there's one thing I do. One thing I do. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And he says there are two components to that. In verse 13, he says, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. Forgetting what lies behind. Now that word forgetting can mean that it no longer comes to our mind, and sometimes that happens. I probably have forgotten things that I used to do, and I can't tell you what they are because I have forgotten them. But most of the time, it means that we're not going to let them control us anymore. You see, we look back to the past, and we see the darkness, we see the sin, we see the regrets and the shame But we can realize, Paul says, forgetting what lies behind, those things no longer determine my destiny. They no longer define me. They are no longer my identity. They are in the past. I can forget what is in the past in terms of its control over my life and its determination of my destiny. Ed Welch, in his book, Created to Draw Near, says this. He says, one of sin's lies is that you are now irredeemably bad and God could never forgive or love you. Shame replaces communion and fellowship with God and everything is injected with hopelessness. We are fooled into thinking that we can never regain what's been lost. The gospel of Jesus Christ destroys that lie. Jesus died for the sins of the past the shame of the past, the regret of the past, everything that's in the past. We are no longer determined to define by that because Paul says, Christ Jesus has laid hold of me and I am his. That is my new identity. So I need to forget what lies behind. But secondly, he says in verse 14, verse 13, I'm sorry, straining forward to what lies ahead straining forward to what lies ahead. Do you hear the language of effort here? He says, straining forward. I'm reaching, I'm stretching out, moving forward. I'm forgetting what lies behind. I'm reaching out to what is forward. He also has said, I press on, I pursue, I chase after. 
I'm following after. I'm straining forward for what lies ahead. Well, what lies ahead? What lies ahead is getting to know Jesus more and more, understanding the person and character of God and who he is for me, living life more and more focused on him instead of myself. In other places, Paul says, laying off the old self and putting on the new self. And what else is coming? What else lies ahead? Heaven is coming when all the pain will finally be over, when we fully receive the inheritance. I don't know about you, but I have trouble forgetting what lies behind sometimes. I look back and still with regret and shame and sorrow and pain. And when we look back, we can't be looking at two places at once. We can't be looking back and looking forward. We can only do one. And Paul's admonition to us here is to forget what lies behind. Don't turn around to look what's behind you. Look ahead to what's ahead of you, which is the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he has promised us and all that he has given us. The Christian life, brothers and sisters, is not instant perfection. The Christian life is not instant perfection, but an upward journey of knowing and trusting God more and more. And as we do, God makes us more and more like Jesus. Life is sinners saved by grace who are on an upward journey home. Yes, there is forgiveness of sin. Yes, there is victory over sin. Yes, there is healing from the hurts of the past. But complete healing and victory awaits our arrival in the new heavens and the new earth. As Nadine was sharing her story with me, she was hesitant to share her story publicly because chapter 3 still has some pain and sorrow and tears. She felt badly because she couldn't come in and say, Jesus has taken it all away and I'm just fine. And I had to remind her and remind her now as she is listening and remind all of us that there's another chapter coming. Let me read to you from Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. That's chapter 4. That's chapter 4 for all of us. It's coming. It's not here yet. And now what are we to do? Forget what lies behind. Reaching forward to what lies ahead. Press on for the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I have here a yo-yo. I didn't say I am a yo-yo. I said I have a yo-yo. What's a yo-yo? Something that goes up and down. Isn't that like life, right? Life has its ups. Life has its downs. Life has its times when life is firing on all cylinders. Circumstances are pleasant. We're making good decisions. We all love each other and things are going fine. But life has its downs. 
we're making bad decisions. Circumstances beyond our control are weighing us down. There is death and sickness and sorrow and pain. But that's what life is with its ups and downs. But for the Christian, it's a little different. Because what you can't see here, there's a stool here right at my feet. The Christian life is like walking up steps with a yo-yo. To do this without breaking my neck. As we go up the steps, life still has its ups and downs. But the higher I go, the highs are just a little bit higher and the lows are just a little less low. Forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, press forward for the prize of the, call of, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So brothers and sisters, like Nadine, let us do this one thing. Isn't that interesting? One thing. That's all we have to do. Keep in mind, one thing. Let us press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. In a very real way, Nadine's story is all of our story. The details may be different, but the core issues are the same. Nadine's desire is that her story can be a help to someone in some way. And I believe her story will be a help to the degree that it helps you to come to Jesus and to his word, more than living with guilt and regret and shame. And I'd like to say that if you, like Nadine, have had one or more abortions in your life, there is complete forgiveness and full restoration to be found. You need to know that. But more than that, there is no sin too great that God's mercy in Jesus cannot forgive. There is no sin too great that God's mercy in Jesus cannot forgive. Whatever sin, shame, guilt you have in your life, whatever is going on that devalues you, that makes you less than God would have you to be from the past or the present, there is true and lasting hope. Why? Because of the name of the Lord Jesus who died for you to cleanse you from your guilt and shame, who rose from the dead to conquer death and to give you new life. There is true and lasting hope because he sends his spirit to live in you, to empower you and transform you, to live a life you would never be able to live on your own. You see, sin devalues human life. Jesus alone is able to restore the sanctity of human life, all human life, from conception to birth, from womb to tomb. What I'd like to do is just give us a couple moments of silence to reflect on these things as God would be speaking to you, and then I will offer a closing prayer.
Father, we thank you for the truth of your word today, and we pray that your spirit would drive that truth deep into our hearts, that whatever it is that we need here this morning, whether it's forgiveness, or comfort, encouragement, whatever it is that we need, I pray that we would find it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. And as we listen to Nadine's story of chapter one being so stained by sin, and chapter two being gloriously saved by Jesus, and then in chapter three, straining forward for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, straining forward to make this salvation our own. I pray that you would help us all to commit to that process of pressing on for that prize. And I pray that we would do so with the view that chapter four is yet to come. In one sense, you've already written it, we just haven't gotten there yet. And I pray that we would live in that hope. I also pray that for our country and around the world, we do pray for the end of abortion, for the end of the taking of innocent human life at its earliest possible moment. But we also pray for the end of all devaluing of human life. We look around us and there is so much, there are so many ways that we take advantage of one another and we diminish one another and we devalue one another. I pray that there would be an end to all of that. And again, we look forward to the time when all these sorrows will be gone, that the tears will be dried, the pain and death and sickness will be gone. But until that time, Father, I pray that you would allow those of us who are your children to be examples of lives rescued from sin and living for you and for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to be examples of those who are able to forget what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead and pressing on for the prize of the goal of the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. May you bless us and keep us by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.